Welcome to Clinical Research Evolved, a show about the history, innovations, and future of clinical research as it evolves from ideas to actions. On this week's show, we talk with Kendall Whitlock, a leader in innovation, communication, and inclusion. Leveraging new technologies in large companies can be a huge challenge, requiring multi-stakeholder buy-in and iterative systemic improvement. Our guest today has pushed at those boundaries from the inside because of her passion to make clinical trials more inclusive and efficient. We talk about how to use data and persuasive communication to turn ideas into reality. Thanks for joining us for Clinical Research Evolved Season 2. I'm Dr. Noah Goodson, your co-host and tour guide to the world of clinical research. As always, I'm here with John Reitz, a digital health entrepreneur turned entrepreneur. Now, John, we say this term every week. We say entrepreneur. What does that mean? Yeah, it really means you are in a large or a mid-sized corporation and you're acting, thinking, and spending capital like an entrepreneur to help innovate within a company. And that, that's at the really heart of it. That's what it's about. It's about the skill sets you need to, to innovate and, and move new things forward, but not on your own within a company. Yeah. And our guest today has been an entrepreneur. One of the things that stood out to me about our conversation is how she really focuses on both partnership and inclusion to be drivers of innovation, both internally and externally. And it's not just this nice idea or some fluff thrown out there, but it's really about how inclusion and partnerships do drive transformation. Yeah, I really appreciate how Kendall talks about if we want to do a, a good job of being inclusive in studies, we also have to think about being inclusive in our own companies, right? How do we get stakeholders and other people on the team to buy in? How do we get them to be ambassadors for the work we're doing? How do we help really move innovation forward, not just from an idea to PowerPoint, but PowerPoint to implementation. And it's really hard. It's not an easy thing to do, but there's a a wealth of insights in today's show that I think really may unlock and give some of our listeners ideas about some strategic and specific things they can do to really move innovation forward as an entrepreneur in the organization they're working in. Yeah, I think what is so nice about this conversation is we talk with someone who's walked the walk of pushing innovation inside of big pharma. And if you're in clinical research at some level, you've got to interact with big pharma players. And so knowing how how they're thinking, how they're operating, what their processes are is really critical. So please enjoy this conversation with Kendall Whitlock. Kendall, great to see you and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and thanks for the invitation. So, Kendall, I want to think back to the very beginning of your career before you've had all your success and everything you've done. It's 1996 and you've just finished your master's degree. You're working in QA. How do you view your career prospects in that moment? Well, I have to say I was ambitious and I think I probably still am quite ambitious. And I saw gaps that I thought I could do something about. Uh, One of those gaps was a trial that I had read about. And I noticed the geographic areas were in a large city in Texas, in a large metropolitan area in New England, the Boston metropolitan area, and one in New York. But I went to college in Atlanta and I thought, hey, they're missing a large metropolitan area where there is a similar gap to what's described in this trial. 
in this consortium. And so I, I literally packed my bag and went back to Georgia and said, okay, well, if it's not going to be me, then I'm going to find who it's going to be and I'm going to build from there. So a little ambitious, um, you know, a little bit quirky, but I literally thought I could achieve it. And so I guess I still have been working at it. Ever since. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And, and that ambition is, is really taking you far. I mean, fast forward to now, we're recording this in end of March of 2022. And, you know, you've, you've just kind of are, are transitioning out of a 13 year career at a major pharmaceutical company is, is how is ambition sort of driving your life in this moment? Wow. Great question. I think that I probably was a kid who was a little bit dangerous in that I didn't know what I didn't know. Like, I didn't know that someone could say, stop, don't do that. Because I said, well, if I'm curious enough, um, I'm going to just go forward until I've satisfied my own curiosity. Or if I see a specific need that is not being addressed sufficiently, then I'll continue to pursue it whether or not I know whether or not I'm the right type of person or I have the right background. I think what what the, the phrase goes, you can't unsee it. And if you see something, you should say something. So if I see, for example, when I was in grad school, a disproportionately higher number of people who were growing in size, and that puts them at risk for cardiovascular or metabolic disease, then what are we doing about it? And the people who may be responsible for it, you know, maybe doctors, research professionals, whomever, it's not fixed. So there's more (laughs) that could be done. And so I just put myself in the mix because I think there's more room to solve problems. That's great. So I know also that in that ambition and this curiosity, I know that a lot of what you're trying to do is because you see a path to improve research overall. Like you have a keen sense of like, hey, there's some particular areas I've seen with my different aperture, different career points of view that say we can do better in some of these areas. And it's not that anybody's doing anything wrong. It's that there's better to be done. And so when you think about that and you look at sort of the, the career you've had, What's the thing that still gets you up every day? That, that thing that intrinsically motivates you to keep being a leader, but also to really think about evolving clinical research when there, you could just sit back and keep running studies and keep contributing to innovation, right? You could just keep doing sort of the status quo. What is that intrinsic thing that really motivates you and makes you want to push it forward? I think it's probably two things. One, rooted in my family upbringing. Both my parents were people who professionally worked on behalf of meeting others' needs. So my mother was a neuropsychiatric social worker in a public school system. And my father was an attorney where people couldn't afford representation. He would provide the service as an attorney so that people were not wrongfully locked away or penalized for things that uh, did not align with the law. That impact or influence from my family left me with a feeling that success doesn't mean I can pay my bills or I can keep a roof over my head. Success also includes the people around me, whether they're my relatives or neighbors, is irrelevant. If I see someone suffering, for example, if I see someone who is is going without, comfort and success for me is not a single person sport. It's not at the individual level. It's at the population level. And the second part, I think, is rooted in sort of a a love and a curiosity about uh, science, uh, just generally. I think that I am hungry for um, how things work, to understand how things work, just staying inspired, truly staying inspired. And, And I think the science, if the science can help to solve some of the social problems as well as the individual patient problems, then 
I don't sleep. <laughs> not, not that I don't sleep literally, but yeah. it's not a job. It's just, it's who I am. It sort of defines who I am. This is Expert Archives, the part of the show where I ask subject matter experts to summarize the history, systems, and terminology of clinical research in everyday language. Today, Kendall Whitlock talks about innovation. What's the best part about innovation at a large organization? The best part is the aha that instead of going from an idea to the folder on your desktop that's called a bucket of ideas, you go from the idea to yes. Even the first yes. Yes, I can present this information or this idea to someone in a position of decision-making authority. Yes, we can vie for funding internally to pilot an idea. Yes, we can partner and bring in external expertise to complement an idea. So I think some of the best in innovation in industry is when the right people have the right idea and they are getting to yes. Otherwise, great ideas are everywhere in people's folders on their desktop called Mm -hmm. bucket of ideas. So looking at the flip side, what is the toughest part of innovation at a large organization? I think in organizations or in people's homes, you can't do it all at once. And so there is a lot to do. There is there is a lot happening. Uh, you cannot do everything at once. You also don't know what you don't know. And so in, in, in part of why you don't want to go too far too fast with many things is because you don't know if you may, for example, need additional expertise to move something forward. This has been Expert Archives, where guests summarize the history, systems, and terminology of clinical research in everyday language. Now, back to our interview with Kendall Whitlock. I think that this these themes from your early career, I know we're, we've gone way back, mostly focused on years ago so far, but I, it's really fascinating to me the way these themes seem to have shaped you because in subsequent years across your time at Pharma, you have moved across multiple areas of innovation. I mean, you were working in like pragmatic trial design, which is like real world data, real world evidence back five or six years ago. And then I really want to like move forward though to more recently because you've been leading and standing up decentralized trials or DCTs kind of from the inside of pharma. When did you actually become even interested in DCTs? I, I hear you have this curiosity, but I'm wondering where the, where the seed of that started for you. Right. So it's a very, very specific kernel, if you will, a, a nugget that, that, that popped <laughs> and led to my interest in DCTs. So a couple of years, not even a full year into my tenure in my last organization, we had a presenter who was an author. Uh, this was Harriet Washington, the author of Medical Apartheid, which portrayed a 300 plus year history of medical atrocities worldwide. Part of the reason that she was invited to speak was because we had a phase three trial and development in type two diabetes and enrolled fewer than 100 African-American or Hispanic patients. Now, that is something that's public knowledge. And so one of the things that I respected about 
the invitation that she got was to me, it meant we were holding up a mirror to ourselves and saying, how can I get better? How can I correct something that I see as a flaw or as a missed opportunity? So I said, I like this place. I like that they will say, hey, I made a mistake and I need to go big with my mistake and correct it. So the next day after the presentation, my then executive director not singling me out for any specific reason, but just having conversation. What do you think we should do? You know, now that we've heard from this person and, and can put that set of information into context, you know, what do you think we should do? So I went to our intranet and I took down a job template and I erased the contents of the job template and I just went to work and started writing out critical success factors and KPIs, the key performance indicators. And what ultimately ended up being nine different categories of what I thought we were not yet doing. So I came back the next day and I said, I'm not going to just have a chit chat with this dude. I'm going to have a job. And if we are serious as an organization about tackling some of these issues, then we are going to put money behind it and people behind it. We're not just going to talk about it. So fast forward, there was an opportunity through the global, what was global clinops and my mentor slash sponsor, who was uh, head of medicine in the U.S. and then had gone to Ingelheim for, for a period of time, said, hey, there's a guy who's evaluating all of these different platforms. I think you guys might have some things in common. Lo and behold, I reached out and in the coming weeks uh, after that conversation shared this position description. I said, you know, I hear things about this digital piece and digital applied in clinical trials could mean this. And, you know, it was almost like, okay, Volley, you said this, then they said this, you said this, and it just went back and forth. And we had this conversation that kept going, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and the yeah, and ended up taking that job description to HR, getting it vetted, getting it posted. And it became my work and my role in the decentralized clinical trial effort with the collaboration that we had at the time. So it's sort of accidental, but meant to be. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't think that sounds very accidental at all. It <laughs> sounds like very purposeful to me. Note for any listener that's trying to figure out what they want to do next. Some of the best advice that people should take when they're early in their career is not to go find the job description on the website. It's to go write it and say, this is what, I, what I'd be really good at. How can I apply this? I, that's, that's wonderful. When we think about taking this idea and this excitement from that room, and then you start moving into it, and you start needing to implement, you know, bring these technology-enabled methodologies, and you've got to bring them into a complex pipeline. And there are so many stakeholders. And anybody who's worked in clinical research, I'm hopefully all of our listeners know, there are many, many, many stakeholders in this industry. I'm imagining it has to do with with some of your skills and like persuasion, but but how can you sort of rally people towards change in an organization? when there's sort of like potential risk, like we're going to try DCT, we're going to try this new technology, but it means change and it means risk. How do you move people in that direction? A couple of uh, things come to mind. And one of them is from my most recent um, leader of, of the digital trials team. And his mantra was always do one thing and do it well. Don't try to do four things at the same time because one of them may not get the same attention as the others. And I think in, in the context of organizational change, I think it, it means covering the landscape. So demonstrating to people that they are seen and heard. So often we'll hear, 
oh, well, this team or this group wasn't invited to your meeting and they are responsible for, you know, ABC and one, two, three. And so that means that in future um, efforts, building a community of practice. And uh, one of the things that I actually did was to do just that, to build a community of practice where multiple stakeholders were brought into discussion. So if it wasn't the one leader of a group, it could be someone they delegated to be a part of the conversation internally. Sometimes, despite working in an organization, you don't always know every single department that is tangentially aligned or, or connected to the work that you do. You don't know that someone else in another group wrote an SOP on that, whatever that is, uh, because it's not in your specific set of responsibilities. So sometimes it takes the connectivity to those who you do know to make the suggestions to invite others to the conversation. And so I think with that, the community of practice can then look at the priorities that you've outlined and say, A, is this it? And what else is missing? And who else needs to be in the conversation? So I'm thinking about this theme that I have seen in your career. You have continued to pursue education. You have like <laughs> master's degrees, master's certificates, and across a range of ideas. Like it's not like, oh, you're just in this one area. You've got stuff from London School of Economics. We mentioned Yale, Columbia. I mean, pursuing mm-hmm. across across the range. But as we've discussed today, you also have really in your career practiced persuasive communication. Have you found that educating people and education or persuasive communication is more impactful in driving change? I think for any person. Having a foundation of knowledge and skill is like their Teflon for living the way that they want to live. Therefore, knowing that you can always fall back on a skill set and a knowledge base to be able to be gainfully employed, for example. So it's, it's like your protection. Uh, it's like your, your cape. You know, it really is one's way of staying viable in their lives. The persuasive communication is useful when it comes to speaking with people who are in different disciplines. And in order to be effective in your communication with people who, say, do other things for a living than what you do, or are in different professions than yours, you have to have a way of connecting in with them. And sometimes persuasive communication comes in handy as a skill set. I think that change, again, really comes from inclusion. And to me, persuasive communication is inclusive, which means whatever change this community might make, they are going to be a part of defining what the problem is to be changed. They are going to be a part of designing the solution to get to whatever changes may come. But it's not an us-them, it's a we. People aren't going to change because researchers came into their pool and said, hi, you need to change. This is my suggestion and I'm the smart person, educated person with the resources and funding and all of this stuff. When the community itself defines and decides that this is something that it wants, then how people work with that community would be through the invitation from that community to those external to the community. And it becomes an inclusive effort that we will solve problems. We will affect change. Would you or someone you know make a good guest for Clinical Research Evolved? 
you have feedback about the show? We'd love to hear from you at clinicalresearchevolved.com slash connect. Now, it's time for Future Forecast, the part of the show where I ask subject matter experts to predict the future of clinical research. Is the future impossible to predict? Absolutely, but that doesn't stop us from trying. Kendall and John, I want you to make some predictions. Will technology help us speed clinical development or is it just going to change the process that we use? I think that technology will eventually help us speed the process. I think that processes have to first be written in order for technologies to help improve those efficiencies. I I think the technology already does it. It's the technology is generally not ever really the challenge we have. Technology can always be better. Technology always has challenges. Technology is never perfect, but it's always about us, right? And it's amazing what we people can do when we need to. And so when people are laser focused on either speeding up clinical development or changing the process, it's just the ability for people to work and make it happen. And they can, because I see examples of it every day, but I see examples of people still struggling to figure out when and how and who's going to be responsible for it. Thinking specifically about DCTs, when do decentralized trials change from an innovative approach to sort of just one of the ways we do clinical research? Great question. And I think that the pandemic has already answered that question. And DCTs become a part of the business continuity plan in organizations so that the next time there is a global pandemic, uh, industry is prepared and has workaround solutions for how do we do certain things when we have ultimately to protect the participants, both patients and research staff in those experiences. So I think we're already there. Yeah, totally agree, Kendall. I, I, we are there, but it's always going to take time for maturation, right? Maturity takes time, takes time to to be normal and be the standard. But I think from my perspective, it's it's already on its way. And it's, you know, for me personally, I'll be thrilled in somewhere between three to six years when no one uses the word decentralized and it's just clinical trials. And we just know, well, yeah, they are flexible. They are, they don't sort of juristic where you live to participate. Like all these things are kind of just normal to us. That's part of my goal in my career. And I think that's you know ultimately where I think that change realizes. But we still got some time. We got work to do. Yeah. I think married to that, John, is diversity in clinical trials. I would love to make that term disappear or that expression disappear because decentralized clinical trials reduces the barrier to participation for any group of people, whether you're geographically in different locations or your your personal physician is not an investigator in clinical trials. I think if decentralized trials um, does anything, then it allows industry to not have to think uniquely about how different segments of society participate. It will just be a solution for those things. Kendall, today we've had this really interesting conversation about how you have leveraged persuasion and education and effective communication to 
drive innovation and transformation, both on an individual level in your early career, and then I think at a much larger level within institutions and the experiences you've used to bring new technology and new markets to actualization. Is there one thing our listeners should take away for their careers to help them evolve clinical research? If I have to say just one thing (laughs) to take away from today's conversation to evolve clinical research, it is to know the problem that you personally think you can solve. Having had a few experiences early in my career that shattered my thinking, 25 years later, I am still needling away at trying to solve the same problem that in my estimation has not sufficiently been solved. Mm. Wow. That was great. Kendall, thank you for the conversation today. It's it's great to have you. We appreciate all your insights, appreciate the work you're doing and excited to learn about what you're going to be doing next. But thanks again for being on Clinical Research Evolved. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Our guest today was Kendall Whitlock. Find out more about Kendall on LinkedIn. Clinical Research Evolved is hosted by Noah Goodson and John Reitz and produced by Noah Goodson and Kyle Ricketts with mix and master by Vandal Pop Media, music by Tom Fox, art by Morris Young, research by Sarah Costanza and media by Cassidy Williams. We'll be back with more insights into the evolution of clinical research from subject matter experts next episode. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love if you shared with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much for listening.